All right, so we test it one more time just to make sure we got my voice. We got my voice. And we got my voice. I need to shave my fucking head, dude. Didn't you just get a haircut? Uh, it's just too long. Oh. I hate it. Getting smushed by the headphones? No, it's just always, always in my face. When we do like laps at jujitsu, it just is bouncing all over the place and I feel like fuck. Oh yeah. And it's like getting in my face. It does, you know, in jujitsu, it's the thing that's uh, not often thought about is the fact that long hair turns into a wet mop. Yeah, with sweat, it's so gross. It's super gross, like I, the back of knees. The back. <laughs> the back I had knees. I had really sweaty knees one day. It was it was quite odd. There was some sort of parasympathetic sympathetic balance that was shifted in the wrong way because the rest of my body was dry i just had really sweaty behind my knees and you were just wearing shorts no spats and i was just wearing shorts and poor zach had to partner with me and deal with sweaty knees and we were doing stuff that you had to grab the legs that day yeah it was gross it was and at one bad. point you i don't know we're transitioning we were doing somewhere. arm bar so i had to literally put the back of my knee on your face yeah that's what it was and the back of my knees were a swamp it was disgusting, and like every time you would slap your knee down to get the armbar, it would just splash sweat all over my face. It was disgusting. Yeah, it was one of the not one of my finest moments, but biological warfare can come in handy. It was gross. Sometimes you get those stinky people. That's like psychological. And they go for head and arm triangles, uh-huh. and so they stick their armpit in your face, and they haven't worn deodorant in eight weeks. And uh, yeah, and they don't wash their geese either. Oh, I hate that. You get the Gee funk. Lot of gee funk. Do you use a special no. gee wash? I just use Tide. Ah. Special there is that pojada nice. or whatever, isn't it? I use that, yeah. It probably works better. It I got I get probably eight weeks of uh washes until finally like the, the tide doesn't do it anymore. And mm-hmm. then I have to put it in the bathtub with vinegar. Ah. And then you leave it over overnight and then you get another eight weeks out of it. Okay. At least you do that. I hate I don't wanna ever be the stinky gee person. No, I have rolled with many people that like fresh doing warm-ups and their gee smells horrendous. Oh, it's disgusting. And and then not only that, but like you have to, oh, first of all, Zach's back. I'm back. Zach, uh, for anyone that has joined the Neural Network late, uh, Zach was one of the original founders of the Neural Network podcast. And, uh, and so blast from the past. Past from the past. Before I haven't been we on just here. reviewed papers and interviewed scientists, Zach and I talked about. Uh, it was supposed to be science based, but we just kind of talked about whatever. Good times though. It's been. Uh, it's been probably about six months. Five maybe? six months. Five yeah. six months since you've been here. Yeah. I think our last episode was in July. Yeah. Because I think it released in August, but at that time you had like four on the back burner. Yeah. Because it released right after I started my. Yeah, we used to be on top of things. Yeah, like almost every Friday we'd record. Yeah, and then there was like episodes in the bank, Mm -hmm. just in case. Yep. Yeah, but I was uh, busy with work stuff lately, getting grants and things, and so I've been flying kind of by the seat of our pants lately. But now, starting to get everything back under control. Getting it back under control. The fires have been mellowed out. Grant funding has been secured. Research can continue. And I'm leaving my job, so I'll have 
more time. Yeah, exactly. So we'll that's how it goes. But anyways, back to uh, Guy Funk. Guy Funk. It's, I, like, I don't know what it is specifically, but when people walk in and you can smell them when they walk through the door or, like, right when they step on the mats. Yeah. It's just horrendous. Like, do you not smell yourself? For anyone unaware, a Guy is a, a kimono, basically. It's, I'm not sure which one is the traditional name. Kimono, I think, is the traditional name. I think kimono is the traditional name. But anyways, it's the the robe-like uh, material, the robe-like suit that you wear during jiu-jitsu or during uh, um, judo. It's like karate pajamas. Karate pajamas. All white. Yeah, they pajamas can be all white or black or whatever. But Blue. Some people do tie-dye. Yeah. I've seen some. They're tie-dye. oddly comfortable and oddly uh, comforting. There's something about them that is comforting. Except yeah. they do give you rug burn on your face sometimes. On your face and on your neck especially. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't trained for a while and you start getting like collar chokes of some sort. Yeah. Or lapel chokes. Uh, I got one of the I got one of the new pearl geese. The the thick gameness pearl geese. Do you like it? So I I originally had uh I don't remember the brand of the first one that I had. It wasn't very good. The the jacket ripped. Whatever. Was it Fuji? No, no. It was some off-brand. Or not off-brand, but... Oh, Kawa. Never heard of it. This is good. Let's just, like, just get rid of any sponsors that we could ever have in the pit. I had a Kawa gi. It wasn't that great. I mean, it was fine. Did the job. And then I got a tatami. I do like tatami. Tatami was, like, the gi is nice. It's fine. Mm -hmm. It's... it. I I noticed that it gains stench faster Mm. than any other gi. But it's a it's a fine gi. Maybe um, you were just going hard when you had that gi. Yeah, Could that's have. true. Maybe your diet was weird. I was one I was one gi in it at that time though. Oh, yeah, see that's so, probably what it was. And then I got a gameness air, like their thin one, mm-hmm. and I was a little worried. So I, the reason that I got it was because my other gi ripped during class, and so I had to buy one, like from the gym. Oh yeah. And so the only ones that they had in stock at that time were the competition ones, which mm-hmm. was the gameness the air, and so they're really thin. And I was a little bit worried because I'm not a small person, but it's held up really well. Um, and so since I was so impressed with that, I got a another gameness, but I got the Pearl, which is their thick one. Okay. And uh, I was thinking that maybe it would last longer or whatever. It's thick. I was sweating. I had more than just knee sweat at that point. I can imagine. I don't like thick geese for that exact reason. I, I feel like with thin geese... You get wrapped up more because yeah. of scripts are easier to get. Yeah, it yeah. feels like, but but then I kind of realized that by the time that um like the the like the the time that it takes for the ghee to accumulate stench versus that of when it starts to rip is pretty similar, and so I didn't really necessarily need a like usually the ghee ripping is not for me the the limiting factor. It's usually like it gets to that point of no return of you can't get the stench out of it. Yeah, that's brutal. You know what I mean? And so I then I realized I probably could have gotten a thin gi and been totally fine because it's usually the stench, not the gi ripping is that's the the common denominator. Yeah, I've never had a gi rip. I've seen a couple gis rip in class, but yeah. it's usually like like at the I've seen a couple rip at like the knee on the interior seam. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um yeah. And then, like, armpits, I feel like, are a pretty common ripping place. Yeah. Behind but the neck. Yours ripped on your neck? Yeah. The the 
lapel itself actually oh, yeah, ripped. I saw that. Yeah, it's over there. It's hard to see because it's black, but it's on a chair hanging up in a in the the studio. In the studio. In the studio, also known as my livable space. Uh, Damn. Yeah. Do but you have any white geese left? Yeah, the tatami. Oh, okay. And that's you still a, wear that one? No. No. Too stinky? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it smells fine when you put it on, and then by the time you're done with warm-ups, it's nasty. Okay. And the, the, the crotch is holding on by a couple threads. So Might you got to make sure that, that you have thick compression shorts underneath just in case. Just in case. Yeah. You that, should it, probably retire it. Yeah. Completely. It's, I've been, like, I, I stopped wearing it for a little bit because the crotch was about to rip. Like, you could see the threads. Uh, but then I had to wear it for a couple months or whatever for some reason. And uh, it surprisingly held up. So, I don't know. Kudos to those threads because they are keeping the team alive. Either that or I don't put that much stress on them, but... You should just cut them and turn them into lifting straps. Oh, yeah. That's not a bad idea. Or, I don't know, use them for something. Yeah. Start sewing. But anyways, uh, NeuroNexus. Yeah. Yeah. What is this thing? So that is a multi-electrode array recording probe. So that is what is implanted into the brain and um, records neuronal activity. And so um, I have a a NeuroNexus multi-electrode array recording probe just sitting on the desk. Uh, I was given it at the Society for Neuroscience conference by the company NeuroNexus because I'm in the market for a high-density neural recording system. So right now we use a system called the NeuroPixels system, and all it does is it has these little shank-like, I don't know, how would you describe it, a shish kebab-looking thing? Uh, yeah, like a really, really thin. Yeah. At the, at the bottom, you can see the, the tiny portion. That's, That's like the, a little skewer. Yeah. A little skewer. And so, uh, we have a one called the neural pixels right now. And it, on that skewer, it has roughly like 300 recording sites. And sure. so it can record from up to like three to 500 neurons at the same time, uh, within the brain. And the neural pixel system works great. And one of the reasons that we, we have it is because, one of the founders of it, Nick Steinmetz, is at University of Washington and the Allen Brain Atlas or the Allen Brain Institute, right down the road from us, uses it as well. Um, and so we we ended up going with the system, and the system works great. Uh, the only problem, though, is that you do need to know a decent amount, uh, or you have to be comfortable with programming. What language do they use? It's a mixture of MATLAB and Python, uh-huh. so it's not terribly difficult. Like yeah. so, once you so when you record. It's essentially picking up the little electrical activity of the neurons. And since you have a bunch of neurons all within a tight space together, this little shank has 300 little recording sites on it that picks up the electrical activity. Uh, But the problem is, is that on a single recording site, you'll pick up multiple neurons. And so you have to, you have to do what's called spike sorting. And so, because neurons make little spikes. And so you have to sort the spikes into which like on a single channel of those 300 channels, you're going to be picking up like four neurons. Oh yeah. And you've s- talked about this before. Yeah. And so you have to sort them out. And so in order to do that, you had to use a, a MATLAB spike sorting process. Uh, and then from there you could export the data and then you could analyze it in Python, however you want. Right. And mm-hmm. so it works fine, but you have to know how to do that. And so the problem is, is that if you want many people in the lab to run the, the system, they have to know that as a background. And so it's, uh, 
and it's not exactly plug and play. Like you have to, there's a few different moving parts that you have to plug the probe into a special box, which then goes to a special like analog to digital converter type thing. And you have to amplify the signal, yada, yada. So it's just like, sounds complicated. It's not that, I mean, it's not terrible, but there's a lot of moving parts. Um, and so since I'm in the market for, uh, a new one, I was exploring some of the other companies that provide a similar type of recording system. Um, and NeuroNexus is one that's been around for a while. And, uh, and so when I was at the Society for Neuroscience conference a couple weeks ago in Washington, DC, I met with the people there and then they ended up giving me a probe just so that I could play around with implanting it. Cause one of the things that you have to like take into consideration is, can I actually get the probe into the area of the brain that I want to get to, you know, you can see like, you can only insert it so far into the brain and uh it's also a shank and so if you're dealing with some sort of structure in the brain that's sort of not linear or not in like a tube like pattern oh yeah and then you're just gonna like catch one portion of it you know yeah and so um anyways they gave me that so that i could sort of play around with it and uh uh yeah and it works it works fine um the nice thing though about the system that I was looking at with this is that it uh the pipeline for analysis and spike sorting and everything is all housed within their own software. And so you can record, spike sort and analyze within a single software. That's and it, you know so the advantage is, is that you don't necessarily have to have as much background in programming and stuff in order to actually do the analysis. You do give up a little bit of fidelity of the data not necessarily fidelity but no, uh you don't get as in depth of access into the data because it has to be more robust right and so like with the totally open analysis it's up to you what you want to include and not include and so it runs the risk of you including things that aren't real whereas when it's totally housed within their software like they have to do the best to give you the data that is extremely confident or that you have full confidence in. And so the, the cutoff has to be higher if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so you might lose a little bit of data, but whatever I need, like if there's no sense in rewriting the wheel sometimes or re recreating the wheel sometimes. Yeah. Plus having everyone in the lab or needing everyone in the lab to have a background in programming is, is it's a tough ask. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, there's better ways to spend their time. And so like, even with the breathing, sometimes a lot of, People like to write their own programs to analyze breathing data. But like if you just have these deflections in air up and down of a mouse breathing or something like that, and there's there's tons of analysis programs that already exist that are really good at picking up breaths and it gives you the frequency and the depth of each breath. And so there's no reason for me to spend a month rewriting a program when there's already programs that do it well. Yeah, you're just spending hours and hours on stack. There's just yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I, I see that all the time. They, some A lot of people just waste so much time because they want to have full control to do it themselves. It's like, if, if this thing already does it, I don't know, well just let it do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't care. I don't need to know how to do every single part of the process. It's like, it's nice to be able to know how to do it just in case. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know. It's always, I, I, I encountered that a lot more in neuroscience than I did in physiology. 
But I think like with neuro, there's a lot more mathematical, or not necessarily more mathematical, but there's more of like a mixture of uh, math-based engineering folks that come into neuroscience. Like with a background in that? With a background in, in computer programming mm. and software engineering and stuff that okay. then adopt neuroscience. Like and get a PhD in it? Yeah, get a PhD in it or like just do research, go into doing research as a research technician or research, whatever. Could be me. Yeah, it could be you. Exactly. <laughs> could be me one day. Yeah, whereas, whereas you don't have as many that go into pure physiology. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, if you think about physiology from the neck down, I guess, even though there is the physiology of the brain, which is what I do. <laughs> but yeah, and so there's sort of this weird, this mix of like, you have the biological based, the people with the biological background, they come into neuroscience and they study the biology, the neurobiology. And then you have sort of the programming, mathematical engineering approach to the brain. And so there's, you, you get two inputs. A lot of times you get these computational brain models of how neurons work and how neural networks work. And then you have this biological basis and they have a different viewpoint on it and they always clash. It's like a big nerd fight. It's a big nerd fight. I love it. And, uh, so that's anyways, then okay. you bring in these high density silicone array recording probes, which is literally at the forefront of the war zone between these nerd fights oh, because yeah. you have biological background, physiology based neuroscientists that are good at getting these things in where they need to go. And they're just looking at how these different neuronal structures kind of reshape and control different physiological functions. But then you also have the, the, the data aspect of it because it's a big data problem. Like you have hundreds of neurons at the same time spiking at really fast rates. And what is the dynamic interactions between the, the, the spiking and the spike shapes and the, how these neurons create different rhythms and, and you can mathematically model it and try to prove things in a physical sense. And so that's sort of that. Wow. That was a rant, but it's okay. Uh, when I saw it at first, I thought it was a like fucking carpenter's pencil shaped real thin because that's what it looks like it's a very expensive carpenter's pencil and then i thought that you made the product no no i can i can only do basic electronics okay i can't do that like i'm like i told you i made that treat dispenser for rue oh yeah do you still have that thing Uh, oh yeah i'll show you it before does it work still oh yeah nice yeah i did it through a arduino dude arduinos are so sick i used arduinos to uh automate uh greenhouse Oh, really? Yeah. Like windows and like opening and closing windows. Yeah. Measuring temperature, turning on like the water into there. They're, they're fun windows. to tinker with. The Arduinos and the Tweensies and those little circuit. What are they? Are there control boards? What do you call them? Breadboards? Uh, well, the breadboard is something that you plug into. It itself is not a breadboard. Like a circuit board? Uh, I don't yeah, I don't know. We're going to get murdered for not knowing the... I think it's just a controller board, isn't it, or something? I don't know. Whatever, yeah. you know yeah, what I'm talking about. Arduino or Tweensies or Texas Instruments has them as well. Yeah, things that you can program to do certain things, yeah. and it provides steady amounts of current and stuff. We know but what we're a, talking about. It's a really good way to learn about like capacitance and resistance, and you can do a lot with them. Yeah, you and, can do like damn near anything with those. Yeah, that was the that was the problem. 
So like you get it, you learn about all these different electronic things, and then you realize how easy it is. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a because I like when you buy it, a lot of people buy those kits, right? And they want to see like learn electronics. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and those are really cool. But uh, the problem isn't usually learning the electronics. That's fast. The problem is finding a project. Yeah, like what do you actually do with it? Like what do you want to do with it? Uh, like you I can make see... lights. You can make anything. I saw one project where um, somebody like built a drone and then attached a camera to it and used the Arduino mounted to the drone to fly through like specific, um, Uh I don't know, hoops in the air and like avoid the red ones and go through the green ones. And it was like auto driving. Oh, so it had like a sensor. Yeah. It was sweet. That's pretty cool. Sweet. People have made like little race cars that do the same thing, like avoid objects like Basically, just recreating a Roomba. <laughs> That's what we should do. Make a Roomba. We should make a Roomba. I should um, make Ru a pet Roomba. You could do a lot of cool stuff, though. They're cool. Yeah, they're pretty tight. I was looking at getting one recently. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I just wanted to fuck around and build something. <laughs> I got two. You can take one. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> I might. Because I, I had uh, built that treat dispenser for Ru. And, uh, but obviously, I have to leave it plugged into it in order to actually run it oh yeah and so i had to order another one but it was cheaper to order two and so might as well get two yeah why what else could you automate you could automate anything i mean you can make like automatic trash like bins like where you wave your hand over it and it lifts the trash can lid and stuff like you can make that pretty easy like they have pretty good sensors and then you can control it to a servo motor which would like lift it up and down um I'm you could to think of just uh, household things that you could automate. Um, you could make a soap dispenser. You could have a sensor that then depresses a soap dispenser. Like when you wave your hand under it. When you wave your hand under it, yeah. You could do the same thing with the actual uh, water itself. You could do that. You'd How have many to have Arduinos pretty... do you think you'd need to build a full robot? I th- well, I think you can control a full one with one. I don't know. It depends on how like um, complicated the robot, sophisticated, I guess is a better word, how sophisticated the robot needs to be. Because that's what I'm thinking. If it's sophisticated, is one Arduino going to be enough? Uh, Probably not. I don't know shit about robotics. Yeah, that's the thing is like once we enter robotics, you're out of my wheelhouse. I know how like, I'm not even going to say that I know how. I know some things about the gray squishy brain of a mammal but when it comes to artificial intelligence that's scares the shit out of me that's not my my area of expertise per se i use ai a lot yeah we all do though i do enjoy ai i don't think people should be scared of ai per se yeah you should be scared should be scared zach's giving me the eyes of you should be terrified you kind of should be terrified to an extent, yeah. To an extent. I just... But I mean, the thing is, go. is like, well, uh, there's that question of like, can it become sentient is the question. And I don't know if that necessarily matters per se. I think it's more of who is building the AI Yeah, that causes the scary shit to potentially happen. And I think some of it relies on how much that you modify your behavior or how much it, contr- like it controls, not controls, by like actually physically controlling you, but by how its answers control how you function. Yeah. In, in, in terms of like a chat bot, 
like which is what most people they're sort of their um, toes in the water to with like chat gpt and yeah like getting Google's their toes wet with, with with ai well there's perplexity there's chat gpt there's bing chat there's yeah google, just google bard bard yeah there's uh facebook has llama or meta i guess i should say meta has llama damn i've never played with any of those there's tons of them. bard and uh chat gpt yeah there's tons of them i think microsoft owns open ai right no i don't open ai owns i'm pretty sure microsoft acquired open ai did they really pretty sure oh i don't know i don't think so maybe i don't know could be talking to my ass right now what do i know <laughs> i was gonna say because microsoft is bing which is bing chat and but i guess that goes through gpt4 yeah but people buy all sorts of shit and then they buy competitors and yeah just gonna be people in screaming in their cars listening to this right now like, yeah i didn't buy it be pissed. <laughs> leave a comment because <laughs> we'll we don't know we'll yeah get, i don't know i don't know i didn't think we were going to talk about ai today so no we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do two episodes probably yeah we should do an ai episode yeah, I'd have to get a little. We like okay, so we like these episodes do require some prep. Not this episode. I was gonna <laughs> this say, episode not a lot this, of our episodes. This episode does not require any preparation. No, but the episodes of like actually doing a scientific information episode. Yeah, or it, if you're talking to an actual scientist. Yes, those yeah. require prep. Those require some sort of prep because, like, the thing is, is I don't know after going to graduate school and stuff and then teaching graduate school courses and, and, and things in physiology, neuroscience, whatever, biostatistics, whatever else I teach in, um, like you, the hard thing, like I, I notice when like tutoring students sometimes is that they get down on themselves because they can't just like on a whim based on their memory, just whip up a, like a dry erase board full of the topic. Yeah, bro, that's coding interviews. You know what I mean? And so, but at the same time, like, once they start to see words and they start to see context, Mm -hmm. then they know it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's like, you shouldn't be expected, like, when I'm I'm seeing if you know a topic or something, I'm not just going to say, tell me about breathing. Tell me about the brain. And it's like, well, what do you want to know about the brain? You know, see, like, there's some sort of context that needs to be said and so i mean don't get me wrong there are some people that are just incredible at just tell me about the lungs or tell me about the heart and they'll just rip through the whole thing but they've had practice how rare is that too what's that how rare is that well i think it's like they're they're quick with their ability to create the context Mm. right so they'll they'll start from the bottom or the top down and they're gonna go the heart pumps blood okay that's based on its physical forces it has different chambers that move blood through and create you know different pressure gradients that then pump the blood and then they go through all that stuff and then and so there's certainly like a way that you can do that and that sort of takes practice after a while but i think there's like a lot of biology students that know a lot about the heart for example but they just need the right question to be posed to them you know and we're back little uh rue break rue Rua decided to insert himself into the episode. He always does. The the true biologist of us all. We spent half the episode snapping my fingers towards the ground to yeah. uh, keep him. We also have to hide all of the toys. We have to hide all the toys. He's a great dog, but he's uh, he likes tension. He also is like five years old, and he acts like he's... Three months, four months. Yeah. 
Just crazy boy. It's a forever puppy. Forever puppy. He looks like a puppy. Means well though. That's because I gave my haircut. Did you? Did you do it yourself? I did it myself. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I went to book a appointment for for uh, a dog groomer, and they're like, like six months out. Like six months booked out. Yeah, and then you go. I don't know how expensive Rue is, but it's, even for a toff, it's like fifty bucks. Yeah, it's not cheap. So I went and bought some clippers. <laughs> Just what you got to do. Did it in the bathroom, and yeah, he looks great. I mean, he he's kind of like a, a half doodle, so you can just use the clippers all the way around. Yeah, it's super easy. It's just he's he's one length of fur everywhere. It's pretty cool. Do you uh, and then clip use his tail? Yeah. Oh yeah. And then I use uh, I did use the scissors around his eyes and stuff. That's smart. Yeah, that's smart. You should well, give him a fade. I should give him a fade. That'd be cool. Like faded into a big, like zebra mane, straight down uh, to his tail. Yeah. That'd be sweet. Gotta find a YouTube video. I watched some YouTube videos on how to clip dog fur. Wow. And then after the second video, I realized you're just running the clippers through. There's nothing magical. Nothing special to it. Nothing just... You can learn so much on YouTube. Oh, I learn everything through YouTube. Same. Learn a lot. If you want to learn about a topic in science... Yeah. YouTube's great. I mean, there's some... (laughs) There's... There's not much quality control. There's no quality so, control besides you, likes and dislikes. Yeah, so you kind of have to take it for granted and uh, do do your own due diligence. Yeah, to, there's a lot of bullshit on... To determine what's right and what's wrong, but I don't know. I don't know. I do a lot of... If I have to teach a subject that I haven't... That I haven't uh, reviewed in a while i'll usually pull up a youtube video damn just to give some context of just to put me in the put me in the mood but put me in the light some candles yeah pour a glass of red wine and exactly start watching youtube videos yeah put you in sort of that that headspace of the terminology I, th- I think that's it you just need the you just need some of the terminology just kick fired back in yeah to get it like if i'm talking about the lungs it's like I just need to think about resistance and elastance and compliance. And once those words start getting flowing and warmed up, then we're good to go. I just don't think that people think about that and like often enough. We're talking about cardiovascular. Like I just need like Plucell's law. I need like pressure gradients, capillary, laminar flow type thing. And I'm like, we're good to go. You just need... Like a reset sometimes. Yeah. Like when Whenever I was in a coding interview, I would say that at my previous company, probably like 80% of it was just front-end stuff. Oh, yeah. And I would do back-end stuff and database stuff, whatever, like um, random IT connections and like software, mm. whatever we're doing, like hooking up point-of-sale systems and like doing those connections. But it's not like I'm not coding to do those things. But most of it was front-end. And then when I started applying for new jobs and doing interviews, I was just studying front end stuff for the most part. Uh And I'd get into an interview and it would be all back end stuff. Even though I applied to be a front end developer, it would be all back end development nonsense. And I'd be like, why the fuck am I doing this? I'm like, do you know what this is? Do you know what this is? And it's like, yeah, but I haven't done that in like two and a half, three years. And Uh they still ask it. And it's common. Like this was a while ago. This was like, I like think the election in 2016, 
we're bringing politics into it for a second. <laughs> oh, boy. But, oh, boy. Uh, I remember somebody was interviewing Gary Johnson, who was a libertarian candidate at the time. Uh-huh. And they asked him, like, what are your thoughts on Aleppo? And he's like, what is Aleppo? Because they were, like, talking about something totally different. Yeah. And everybody roasted him after that. And they were like, he doesn't even know where Aleppo is. And he was like, no, we were talking about something else. And you bring up Aleppo. I thought it was like an acronym for something. Sometimes you just need to get the juices flowing. Yeah. To be able to be receptive of information. Exactly. I think that a lot of people think that you can just jump straight into a topic. No. Or because you have some sort of expertise in it that you are an actual expert in everything all the time. No. And you're like, I'm thinking about heel hooks right now bucko i don't give a shit about anything to do with the heart i'm not thinking about it that's like well that's with uh with interviewing people for the show sometimes when i'm interviewing scientists and i have no idea necessarily like what they're researching i mean like i've looked at what they're researching but i don't know how that system works like the intricacies of it like the intricacies of the that part of the brain that they're that they're looking at or that part of the body like I have a general idea of the basic function of that of that organ. And so you can come up with questions and stuff based off of that. But it's sort of like when you're it's sort of like when you're a reviewer on a paper. Like when I get assigned as to be a reviewer on scientific papers as for peer review. Like I like I always I always say is that my job as a reviewer is not to rewrite the paper. It's to just check the integrity of the paper to make sure the statistics line up make sure that everything that they're saying is backed up by the evidence and that there's nothing sort of outlandishly wild that's being claimed just because you can cite that paper as as information you know what i mean because now it's once it goes through peer-reviewed now it's a peer-reviewed study and you can cite that as information and yeah. so it can be used for citing for potential medical treatments and stuff like that and so having a bad publication slip through which don't get me wrong they do all the time but it can set off sort of a chain reaction where now you have a biotech that picks up um a new technique in order to create a medical treatment they cite these papers that may not totally be true and now you've just wasted i mean not mine but you've wasted someone millions and billions of dollars sounds like confirmation bias and potentially hurt patients you know, so there is sometimes where like it's sometimes as a reviewer, you have to not reject something, but you have to be critical of something, not necessarily because it's totally wrong, but because it's not totally true mm-hmm. based on the evidence that's provided. Sound like a gray area. Yeah. And so there's a lot of things where I think the most common critique, at least for me, that I end up putting on reviews is toned down the wording like to dumb it down no tone down is in don't be so like these results suggest that this may be the case not that these re- results show that this is true like to say Seems that like it's a, like, like, like let's say that you give a drug and that drug modifies a certain pathway and that pathway uh sorry this drug modifies a certain pathway and then blood pressure goes up Right. And so then you can make the claim that like you can make the claim that this drug raises blood pressure, but you can't necessarily make the claim that that pathway itself raises blood pressure Hmm. somewhere. It's involved within the process. Sure. So you have to say that this pathway may cause a change in blood pressure. Okay. Because it's 
it's a, uh, activity is modified by the drug, you know, but you don't know that that's the end point unless there was studies to show that specifically perturbing that pathway alone can cause changes in blood pressure. Damn. You know? So it's like, you just have to be a little bit careful. Yeah. You kind of got to be hypercritical. Right. Because you don't know every process that's occurring. You're putting it like you're putting a drug into a full body and into a whole body. And so you're looking at through it through a very microscopic view. And so like, that's where you have to kind of tone down the wording. <laughs> it makes sense. <laughs> you know? So I just, uh, just to cover the basis, which is why it's hard to find very good mechanistic studies that are actually driving the mechanism of this is how this process works. Boom. Done. Does it just take extra time or is it just, um, not, well, I think nowadays there's just so many tools available hmm. to go further down into the rabbit hole before it was like we pumped air into the lungs and we saw how the resistance changed over time or the resistance changed as a function of the volume of air in the lungs. And it's like, that's, that's just what it is. Yeah. It's a physical property of an organ. And so that's the fact, but now you're getting into molecular pathways and genetic predispositions and genetic mechanisms that are driving certain changes. And you can say like filling the lungs to 50% capacity changes transcription of gene X, which then causes the, the production of protein Y, which then causes an immune response in these immune cells, which then affect this. And so now there's so many moving pieces and we have such good technology to be able to assay each and every step that it's hard to say like which step is causing <laughs> certain things. So wow. you just haven't toned down the wording. And there's a lot of this might do this, this may do this, these results suggest X, Y, and Z. But it's not wrong. It's it's just the the way to do it. It's just bending. Yeah. But anyways, with but being re, being a reviewer, what I don't like is sometimes the reviewers come in and they tell you to plot the data this way, do this experiment, and then resubmit the paper. And it's like, well, it's not your paper. Like you're a reviewer because as a reviewer, you have like the, you don't have the, I mean, I don't want to say you have the power, but like the, 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 the authors are trying to publish in the journal, mm -hmm. right. And it has to go through peer review. And so usually the reviewers take a crack at it and they edit the paper by saying like, what are the statistics for this? Make sure that you show this. And if, if this is the claim that you want to provide or, you know, sometimes they do grammatical stuff as well. You missed a period or, you know, Damn. weird things. But um, uh, anyways, so th there's a lot of that kind of stuff. But sometimes they can have you do more experiments. So, like, if 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 you think that this is the mechanism that's causing change in blood pressure, you need to do this follow-up experiment in order to actually prove it. And then it goes back to the authors, and the authors have a chance to rebuttal. And most of the time, you sort of just... Uh, incorporate the reviewer comments into the paper and then resubmit it. And most journals try to not go through more than one review cycle, but they can like, you can send it back and then the reviewers can send it back again. And so you can go back and forth a couple times. Um, but most journals try to do it within one author, send it in reviewers, send back their comments, authors incorporate the comments and then the reviewers either accept or reject. 
you okay. know and if they've already reviewed it then they try to promote acceptance of the paper that's just like the peer review process there are some journals that i i don't know how i feel about it. i think like sometimes it's nice sometimes it's not but they have like a, a discussion forum with the reviewers and so like you submit the paper and then it goes into the system and the reviewers can type in their their reviews and then it just gets posted on a like a, a private discussion board damn and then you can go back and forth, which is nice because sometimes with the, the the model of only getting one time at it is that the reviewers will submit a comment and you want clarification. Like they'll tell you to run a statistical test and you're like, on what part of the data? Hmm. And you wish you can ask, but you can't ask. You just have to like guess. Can't just look them up on LinkedIn and shoot them a quick message? <laughs> well, it's all anonymous. <sighs> That's ass. It's de-identified, if you will. Well, it's not de-identified in the sense that the reviewers know the the reviewers know the authors, mm-hmm. but the authors don't know the reviewers. Some journals are changing that, but does it ever get posted who reviewed it? Sometimes, some some journals have identified reviewers, and so you can actually see a lot of journals now actually post the reviews with the paper. Hmm. If you so want to go and read through, read through them, I would not. Yeah, the <laughs> fact they're usually posted at the end with a link. <laughs> yeah, not for me. Yeah, somebody out there though. Somebody out there does it, and good on them. Huh. But now, actually, eLife, one of the major journals, changed their policy so that there's no more. The reviews are optional, so you can just publish without being reviewed. Yeah, well, so you can you submit the paper, and then you like it, it will be published. The comments will be posted with it, but it's up to you whether or not you want to actually do anything with the comments, which has caused an uproar in the scientific community. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I Damn. mean, there there are open access or there's open source journals and like BioRx is a big one, BioArchive, where you just post a paper. There's no review, nothing. You just post a paper and thousands of papers are published, published, air quotes, in there every day because there's no review scientific review process sounds like reddit for scientists <laughs> yeah but there's act i mean their actual papers like abstract intro methods results discussion etc uh and and um uh references and stuff like that and some people actually reference those papers and stuff and and it's it, it was based on the premise of sort of the data science type of approach where the mass amount of data eventually points in the right direction versus having every single one be perfect. You know, you can have a mass amount of slightly imperfect data or you can have a few perfect data and either way, they're both going to point to the same thing. I guess that's true. That's sort of the, and if you, if you do it statistically, I guess it kind of does pan out that way, you know? Yeah. But do people look at those papers as being legit? Yeah. Well, some do and some don't. It's it's putting it the, the the idea is that it puts it on the reader versus it puts the burden on the reader to determine the quality of the paper versus two reviewers that may or may not know anything about the subject. Hmm. So that's where I was saying sometimes you get assigned to be a reviewer on a paper and you don't quite know a lot about it. And this is where I I like I tend to be I don't want to say a gentle reviewer, but for the most part, if they're submitting a paper on this and their their lab studies that topic, 
they're the experts on it. They're sure. the ones doing it. And I'm as a reviewer, I'm not the expert on that topic because they're the ones publishing on it. Yeah, so you're really just looking at so I'm just language. really just looking for generalized things to make sure that certain things. But like when it comes to why they picked certain experiments, like I usually give the authors the benefit of the doubt that they probably picked it because it was the right experiment for it because that's what they study. Damn, you know, I don't know. It's it's. The, the scientific review process is a an interesting hot button debate amongst the field, especially now where it's sort of switching as to whether or not. And some journals are actually getting rid of it. They're getting rid of the review process entirely, right? Or or they're making it that it's somewhat optional. Damn, like eLife. A lot of the big major journals are not. They're still keeping it. Okay, but you can sometimes you can you can get a snarky reviewer. That just doesn't like the way that you do things, and because uh, there are there are rivalries in in the fields. Are there really of different differing theories? Oh yeah, I guess I you know. I and so like that. if you think about Einstein trying to publish his theory or whatever, and there's people that were certainly not fans of it. If they end up being the reviewers, they won't get it published, and then you can never publish your data. And so sometimes you can run into these holes where it's like you submit to the journal and then it goes to a reviewer that doesn't necessarily like the way that you do things. And the paper just goes through this endless void of review. It takes a year to get published. Can you just resubmit if it gets kicked back and you have yeah. like some sort of... You can just go to a different journal. But you can't submit it in the same journal again? Uh, if it gets rejected, there has to be like specific circumstances. <laughs> Yeah, but if you're like Dr. Dickhead over here is the one reviewing my paper, so I don't want <laughs> you can, Yeah, you can rebuttal. Okay. Yeah. Most of the time you don't know who it is, although if they're if they're being that mean, they usually make themselves somewhat known. I bet. Like like if you submit a paper and uh, within the review, the reviewer says to cite certain papers, like you need to cite this paper or for this this claim that you're making, and then the six papers that they tell you to cite are all by the same author. Mm. You kind of know, like... Might be Dr. Dickhead. Might be this person. <laughs> yeah, my rebuttal would be like, you know how to defend a heel hook, buddy? <laughs> yeah. Your leg's going bye-bye. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, all right, I kind of know who it is now. <laughs> Damn. And everyone everyone uh, in a lot of labs have their own special thing that they study. Yeah. And there's, you know, within certain subfields you can get an idea. And so like within, let's say the control of, uh, I don't know, control of breathing, whatever. There might be one or two labs that study the influence of cerebral blood flow to different areas of the brain on breathing. You submit a paper and the whole review is about putting it into the context of cerebral blood flow. You kind of know who's doing it. I guess that's fair. You know, I guess that's fair. Um, do you get to choose what you want to study? When you go into it, or is it just kind of dependent on where you get hired and then you kind of just get stuck in that area because you're like, well, I just spent the last, you know, four or five years in, what do you call it? Postdoc? Residency? Postdoc, yeah. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's the weird thing. So like you go to grad school, you Hmm. study a certain topic in depth, you end up writing a dissertation on it, which dissertations are, are big, you know, I mean, mine's over there. It's like. Three, yeah, it's like 300 pages or something. Jeez. But it's not as... There's different types of dissertations. 
Like, do you study the same thing that your dissertation's on? No. It's somewhat related to an extent. So the thing is, is that if you're going to stay in academics, um, after you finish your dissertation or whatever, which, which I was going to say, it's, it's a lot of writing, but at the same time, like for some, for a lot of dissertations, the middle portion of it is just your papers that you published along the way. And so you put all your papers in and that's already a hundred or some pages or whatever. And then you write an intro and you write a conclusion and that's, that's your dissertation. So really the dissertation, I mean, you're writing the papers along the way, but really the dissertation itself is like the intro and the conclusions. I guess I've never thought about it. Of everything. Some, some people do write a full like story, like dissertation and good on them where you just write a whole book and you incorporate some of the things that you found. Um, but a lot of times it's, it's, you just, I don't want to say you just, but you, you take your papers that you published literally verbatim, copy and paste them into the middle, write an intro and a discussion and then write it up. Um, so Rue's just, Rue is chilling. That might show up. I could hear his tongue on the mic. <laughs> He's just licking his chops over there. He's very interested. Uh, but yeah, no, you, uh, if, if you want to stay in academics, I guess a lot of it comes, a lot of the academic game comes down to funding. And so, um, in order to get, have a good shot at a postdoc fellow at a postdoc funding, um, like to get your own postdoc funding, they, the reviewers tend to like when you study something else, like you diversify what you've been studying. Sorry, after postdoc? Uh, in postdoc. In so postdoc. like after graduate school, you studied something for like four years and then you go and in, it's usually looked upon favorably if you go to a different institution somewhere far away and you study something that's slightly related, but a completely different topic. So then is it the same after postdoc? And then, yeah, after postdoc, then you have to study something different only because of the fact that otherwise you're just going to be in competition with the lab that you did your postdoc in. I guess I didn't think about that. So you kind of have to diversify your, now you have to create your own niche. And so for a lot of those, those transition grants that transition you from postdoc to faculty position to have your own lab, uh, part of the the scoring is based on your independence. Like what is your pathway to your own independence? So how are you going to take what you've learned and now transition into your own niche? And is the, the studies that you've lined up in that grant tailored in order to take you from what you've been studying to your own topic outside of what you've been studying? Okay. So like for me, Right. I've been focusing on like my graduate work was focused on exposure to different environmental gases like CO2 goats. and goats. Yeah. Like high CO2, low oxygen, things like COPD, asthma, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I transitioned to rhythm generation in the brain. How does the brain create the autonomic breathing of like, how does your brain make you breathe? And then from there went into opioids a lot you know, as a, as a contextual drug to modify that rhythm. Right. But essentially at the end of the day, we were studying how r- these rhythms are generated. Uh, and then from there, then now for my lab, we're transitioning into f- the, the motor control system of how do you, um, control your airways 
in integrated with those basic rhythms that drive you to breathe. So how do these brain regions control the rest of the physiology of the lungs and how does that become incorporated into those areas? So it's sort of mixing the two backgrounds together. Yeah. So then, wow. I, I don't, I just thought that you always, you know, studied the same thing oh. throughout like your entire career. No. Kind of. Some people do. Some people do. Just depends on if you follow the question or the technique. I don't know. Is there like, um, cause I know it's kind of dictated off of grants and whatnot, but is there like dream research? Like say you got totally hypothetically. Yeah. You get a million dollar grant. You're kind of boxed into studying something, but say some random, I don't know, investor was like, we're going to give you $50 million to play with. For you specifically, would that dictate what you're actually studying or would it just allow you to like double down on the thing you're currently studying? Oh, I mean, it could be both. It just depends on how the funding is structured. I mean, a lot of it's just dictated on funding, which makes sense. Yeah. With grant funding, you get the money and it's based on preliminary results of a certain topic. Uh, but grant funding gives you the flexibility that if the studies are, you just follow, I don't want to say the path of least resistance, but you sort of, you follow the research and the results. And so usually by the end of the grant, the thing that you ended up studying, it's, it's very closely related to what you proposed, but it's quite different. Okay. Versus like a, like a contract that you would do like with the, the department of defense funding and stuff like that. Those are no matter what the results are, you're finishing those studies. That makes sense. And so if you propose that you're going to do seven animals on this exact study, if you get three animals in and it's not working, you're doing the rest of the four. I know how DOD operates. Yeah, exactly. Very familiar. <laughs> yeah. So, but whereas a grant funding, you can get three in and you're like, this just isn't working. So we're going to go and fall. But it's like we're, we're trying to study obstru- like airway obstruction, for example. And if you get three studies in and you're not getting airway obstructions, but you are getting changes in blood pressure, it's like, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to go towards where we are seeing the difference. Okay. You know? Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that either. Yeah. There's a lot of shit that we talk about on here that I just, that just had never thought week, about. I don't know how we got from geese dank to here, but... I don't know. We were supposed to start the, not even start. Yeah, this we still episode have to, was supposed to be on hydrogen versus alkaline water. <laughs> yeah, the next episode will be hydrogen versus alkaline water. Yeah, we'll but get there. We'll get there. All we right, let's wrap this puppy up. All right, let's wrap this puppy up. All right. Let's do it. www.theneuronetwork.org. Because we couldn't get .com because we're poor. Uh, Apple, Spotify, all that kind of stuff. All right. Wait. Wait. Do you have a newsletter? I don't have a newsletter. Okay. Well, newsletter coming soon. Newsletter coming soon. I just wanted to double check. (laughs) Give us your email address. (laughs) All right. Okay, bye.